0: with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. Hey, Young and Profiters. Today, we're talking about persuasion. The topic of persuasion can get a bad rap. When we hear the word persuasion, we often think of manipulation. And let's be real. If people are persuasive and if they have bad intentions, they can definitely be manipulative. But at the end of the day, persuasion really just boils down to effective communication. How can I communicate so others take my ideas seriously? And there's nothing manipulative or negative about that. Everyone wants to be heard, and today's episode, I'm joined by Scott Adams to discuss how to be more persuasive. Scott is the creator of the popular comic strip Dilbert, and in recent years, he's become an authoritative voice in the field of persuasion. He's a New York Times bestseller of Win Bigley, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter, and Scott's name may ring a bell if you're into politics. We do discuss political events in this conversation, but the examples are meant for educational purposes only. Scott and I discuss talent stacking, confirmation bias, mass delusions, common persuasion tactics, branding, how to avoid being manipulated, and so much more. This Yap Classic is a highlight of episode number 38. So be sure to check out that full unedited version if you love the content in this episode. Again, that's number 38 for the full unedited version. And we'll stick that link in our show notes. If you're wanting to improve your negotiation skills, communicate your ideas more skillfully, and better influence the people around you, this episode is for you. I've heard you say in the past that luck always plays a part in success. So do you think luck factored in your success with Dilbert? And why do you believe that luck is a big part of being successful?
1: Yeah, luck is... I would say, a necessary component. It's not sufficient. You still have to work hard and have some talent and all that. But you have to have luck also, because if luck goes the other way and you have bad luck, there's just nothing you can do to, to compensate for that. But that sounds a little hopeless and defeatist, as in, well, if luck doesn't find me, what can I do? But I'm saying nothing like that. Here's what I'm saying. Luck can be found. It doesn't find you. So, for example, when I was born in a very small town in upstate New York, after I got my college degree, the first thing I did was get out of that town because the odds of luck finding me in a small town with no opportunity were very small. Mm -hmm. But once I went to San Francisco and tried to make a life in the Bay Area, there was luck all around. If one thing didn't work out, I could go across the street to another company. If that didn't work out, I could go across the street again. So there were infinite opportunities to accidentally find luck. And if you don't change your circumstance and put yourself in those positions, it's never gonna find you. And then on top of that, the other piece of advice that goes well with that is what I call talent stacking, where you build a number of talents that work well together. In my case, I'm not the world's greatest writer and I'm, I'm not even anywhere near the best artist, But I can do both of those things. Hmm. And then I also had a a background in business, so I had a content to write about. So if you add business skill with writing skill with artistic skill, none of those three skills has to be world class. It's just that they fit together really well. And so I I always recommend whatever you're doing, make sure that you add some complementary skills because that's what makes a luck look for you.
0: That's great advice. Now, people have been interviewing you about Dilbert for decades. You wrote a book early in your career on the Dilbert principle. And we could go on and on about, you know, stuff that you've done earlier in your career. But my podcast is aimed to help listeners grow financially and professionally. And so I'm going to focus the bulk of this episode on persuasion, which I know you're an expert on. These days, you've positioned yourself as an expert. Before we get into the nitty-gritty on that, I just want to know, how difficult was it for you to go from cartoonist to having a brand all about being a master persuader and things like that?
1: <laughs> well, first of all, it's expensive because the topics I talk about are in the political realm, and it's very easy to say something that will cause somebody to say, I will never buy your book or calendar again because of that one time you disagreed with me. And it doesn't matter if you're right. I just disagree. So it was very (laughs) expensive. But I knew it would be. And I'm also at a point in my life where I have enough wealth that if things go wrong, I'm still fine. And so I had the opportunity to do something that other people simply couldn't do because it would be too dangerous to their brand, too risky to their reputation, too expensive. But I have a high risk tolerance, which is also a learned skill to some extent. And I didn't know exactly where it would all go. I just started blogging about it, and that turned into doing live streaming on Periscope and tweeting about it. And next thing you know, I've got, I don't know, 325,000 Twitter followers, and people Mm -hmm. wanted me on TV and stuff. So one of the other things I recommend for people trying to figure out life is you should try lots of stuff And if that stuff doesn't work right away, or at least doesn't show signs that it could work, then bail out and try something else. Mm. So I've probably failed 9 out of 10 times. I've tried things throughout my entire career. But the reason that you're talking to me is that 1 out of 10 things don't just work, but they work fabulously. They work so well that it compensates for all the things that don't work. So even this morning, I was talking about how to maybe build down a studio and expand what I'm doing with live streaming, etc. cetera. Now, I don't know if that'll work or it'll be just a big waste of money, Mm. but I do know that I can tiptoe into it. I can find out what does work and I can back out without much of a loss. So that's my recommendation is put your efforts into a whole bunch of little baskets and then see if the basket shows signs that it could sustain itself if you keep working on it. In other words, does it show interest that's really strong from the first moment? That's always a good indicator, even if everything else is going wrong.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's kind of like, you know, experiment, lean into what works and make sure you fail fast if you think that nothing is sticking. Great advice. So what makes you an expert on persuasion? What credentials do you have in that area?
1: Well, first of all, I never call myself an expert, but much of the press has called me that. My background is that I'm a trained hypnotist. So in my 20s, I went to school to become a hypnotist. And the things I learned about how people think and how they're persuaded and the limits of rational thought were world-changing. And the biggest change is that most people believe that human beings are rational creatures most of the time. The common view is that, oh, 90% of the time we're rational about things. Sure, every now and then, let's say 10% of the time, We get a little crazy and, you know, we get emotional and maybe we lose sight of reason. But mostly we're rational creatures and therefore you should build a message around that rationality. But people who study this stuff from hypnotists to any kind of mind control people to advertisers all know that none of that's true. We are a fundamentally irrational species who is only rational maybe 10% of the time. But it's the 10% where there's no emotion and there's nothing on the line. So, for example, if you're just balancing your checkbook, for example, that's just math, you could probably do that rationally. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to find the most direct path to work, you could probably figure that out rationally. But if you're trying to figure out who to marry, what job to have, whether to fall in love, what political group to follow, that's all irrational. We join teams, we make decisions based on... Biases and bigotry, and Mm -hmm. things we've heard that aren't true, and then we rationalize them after the fact. So that was my first exposure to that way of thinking. But what followed was decades of practice and study on my own of all the forms of persuasion. And that includes visual persuasion. You know, how do you make a PowerPoint? presentation, how do you draw a comic that persuades, to using words and combining messages and with various content. So as part of my job as a writer and cartoonist, I'm always absorbing everything I can in that topic. Mm -hmm. And getting back to my earlier point about a talent stack, part of what makes me a better writer is that I've added that specific talent to my stack. Uh, I would recommend that no matter what you're doing... No matter what your career is, even if it's a technology career, if you're a math teacher, it doesn't matter. You should also learn the basics of persuasion because it's useful for
0: just everything. Yeah. So a big part of this is all the different biases that people have. There's several you talk about in your book, confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance, consistency bias. Could you just walk us through some of these filters that people have that prevent them from looking at things rationally?
1: Well, I think the team filter has got to be the biggest one. So people identify, they pick a lifestyle, and they say, I'm one of these people. You know, if you showed people a bunch of pictures of different types of people, they would tell you, well, I'm probably going to agree with the person you show me in this picture or this picture. So I think for politics, it doesn't get much beyond that. Now, people also have other biases. You know, they have racial bias. They have bias about You know, everything from whether somebody has a handicap to age to gender. You know, we are a very, very biased civilization. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that can be removed from the human being. And the problem is that people are also pattern recognition machines. We look for patterns and we say, okay, that's the pattern, and now I know something. But the problem is we're really terrible at finding patterns. So if five people from Elbonia punched you in the mouth when you were on the street, you would conclude, well, there's a pattern. Everybody from Elbonia is a puncher. I would better stay away from all Elbonians. But maybe what you don't know is that you happen to be there during you know, the convention of Elbonian punchers or something. That's a ridiculous example. But <laughs> you, there's generally some context that would explain your experience, but you don't know the context. So you just say, well, five Elbonians, five of them punched me in the face. They're punchers. I guess that's it. And we're continually going through life imagining that we see patterns, but a lot of it is just confirmation bias and not really a pattern. It's a fake pattern. So confirmation bias, for those who haven't heard of that term, means that we have a tendency to see what we expect to see, and we will define what we see and interpret it as compatible with what we already thought was true. So even if you show somebody evidence That refutes what they believe to be true, they will twist it in their mind until it doesn't exist or that it really does support them. That's the normal way minds work.
0: Cool. And something that really caught my attention was your thoughts around mass delusions. Can you tell us why you think mass delusions occur and maybe provide some examples of the biggest mass delusions you think exist right now?
1: (laughs) Well, Yeah. Mass illusions are common throughout history and maybe so common that they're more common than the truth. Mm. But we wouldn't know because we're continually in them. I'll give you one of the best examples from history. There was a, a case, I forget, it was a few decades ago called the McMartin preschool case. And the people who managed this preschool were accused of being Satanists, who were taking the children to a secret room beneath the preschool and subjecting them to all kinds of, you know, violent and horrible satanic rituals. And the reason that the police believe this was true is that they talked to a number of students and a number of students said it was true. So what are you going to do if you've got, you know, a dozen students or however many it was, but it was a lot, who have some version of the same story? So they bring him to court and... It turns out that there was no underground thing at all. There was literally no piece of evidence to suggest any of it was true. But people couldn't figure out, then why are all these kids saying it's true? It doesn't make sense. You couldn't get that many people to say the same thing unless it was true. And then somebody who understands how this stuff works, probably somebody who'd been either a police trainer or maybe somebody who had experience with hypnosis, looked at the tapes of the police interviewing the children. And once you look at them and you have my skill set, you can see what went wrong. Mm. They were actually suggesting to the kids that this was happening. And the kids are so easily influenced that they would imagine it was true and feed it back to the police as if it were, and even add details. So if the police had done it right, they would have said, can you tell us anything you know that's going on with the school? Anything seem out of place? And then if the kids had said, yeah, out of place, they've got a satanic basement, that's out of place, that probably would have been useful information. But if the police say, we've had some reports that some things are going on with people being taken to basements, you know, have you ever been taken to the basement? If you say that to a young kid, there's a pretty good chance the kid is going to look you in the eye and say, yeah, I've been to that basement, I know exactly what you mean, and it's just imagination. After a while, they'll actually talk themselves into it, and the child will actually form a false memory of something that didn't happen on their own. So that was a famous case of a mass hysteria. Of course, the Salem witch trials, where the Puritans thought that some people were witches, and then everybody imagined they were seeing witchcraft everywhere. But of course, none of that was true. One of the ways that I advise people to tell what's an illusion and what isn't, is if people are seeing different things while looking at the same evidence, the people who imagine some extra stuff there are probably the ones imagining it. So for example, if, you, if somebody says, hey, there's an elephant in the room with us, and you look around and there's no elephant, and you say, I don't see an elephant, and the other says, look right here, it's right in front of you, a giant elephant, you can usually count on the person who does see it is the one hallucinating. Because we don't usually hallucinate subtractions from the environment. Mm -hmm. So it's unusual to say, hey, there's no furniture in this room. And then the other person says, yes, there is. It's more typical that you add something to the environment that's not there. And so you see that in politics all the time. It's people imagining they could read the mind of the president. And even though what he did or said wasn't so bad, they think that they can tell by the word choice that his real inner thoughts, the things he didn't say, are bad as well. And so that's the situation we have now that people imagine they can read minds of complete strangers and they see terrible evil in there.
0: Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. What's up, Yap Bam? Being an entrepreneur and working remotely definitely has its perks. And I know a lot of you listening in are in the same boat as me but do you really take advantage of being able to work from anywhere? I know I typically don't, but thankfully this past holiday, I finally decided to make use of my work flexibility for the first time ever. My boyfriend and I decided to pack up and leave to the West Coast to spend an entire month working from home in the sun. We got a super cute bungalow in Venice Beach with a fenced backyard. The change in scenery, the fresh air, and the slower pace helped me to inspire some really cool new ideas for my business. And honestly, I'm feeling really refreshed and ready to rock in 2024. And who helped me make these remote work dreams come true? It was Airbnb. And Airbnb has come in clutch for me time and time again. Whether it's finding the perfect Airbnb home for our three-day annual executive team get-together or booking a vacation where my extended family can fit all in one place, Airbnb always makes it a great experience. And you know me. I'm always thinking of my latest business venture and I've been begging my boyfriend to start hosting our place on Airbnb. And finally, we're gonna start. So many of my successful friends host on Airbnb and it's such an amazing way to generate passive income. So to start, we have a plan to start spending more time in Miami and we'll be hosting our place to earn some extra money when we're back on the East Coast. 2024 goals and I'll keep you updated. A lot of people don't realize that they might have an Airbnb right under their own noses. I was pretty surprised myself. You can Airbnb your place or spare room, even if you're out of town for just a few days or weeks. You could do what I did and work remotely somewhere else and Airbnb your place to fund your trip. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host to find out how much your home is worth. Young and profiters, it's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. With inspiration at our fingertips and powerful tools at our disposal, the possibilities are endless. And when it comes to tools that can truly make your business grow, there's one name that always stands out, Shopify. <laughs> Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the real store with the door stage. And even the, did we just hit a million orders stage? And if you're in that, I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify magic is your AI super powered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Not to mention Shopify also is the home of the best converting checkouts in the game, 36% better than other leading commerce platforms. Shopify turns browsers into buyers. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And you can sell whatever, whenever with Shopify. Push pleated pants with Shopify's in-person POS system or monetize mindful meditation. I sell my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass through Shopify and they've made my life a breeze. It took a couple days to set up my store and I just get to focus on what I do best, creating great content and marketing my product. So don't stress if you're new to this commerce thing. Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. And remember, whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com profiting. And that's all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash profiting to start growing your business today. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. How does fear relate to persuasion? And how was fear used in our last election to persuade voters one way or another?
1: So the most powerful persuasion is fear. Because if you're afraid of something, that's the thing you have to act on first. It's the thing you can't put off until later. We evolved or we were designed, depending on your point of view, to have brains that respond first to danger. And if we didn't, we'd all be dead. Because, you know, if if a wild animal enters the room, you can't really, you know, work on your crossword puzzle while that's happening. Mm -hmm. So in the election, we saw that Trump was claiming that we had danger from people coming in who are not legal citizens and they might come in and cause some crimes. So he used that kind of fear. He used the fear that the economy would have a problem if somebody else got elected. And then Hillary Clinton's team, also using high-end persuaders as their advisors, came up with the idea that President Trump would be dark. They used the word dark, which is a real professional persuasion word, and also the thing that tells you that they were using professionals to advise them. (laughs) When you hear dark, that's a good hypnosis word because you read into it whatever you thought is the worst-case scenario. So instead of making specific claims— which you might say, well, that specific claim doesn't sound exactly like something I believe is going to happen. Instead, Hillary started saying it's a dark image, it's a dark future, it's a dark idea. And people start saying, hey, I have some ideas of my own what might go wrong, and they do sound kind of dark. So it was a way to capture all of those vague worries into one word, and weaponize it for the election. So both sides used fear at its maximum, and you see that continuing today. President Trump still uses fear as part of his persuasion. Hey, we'd better build a wall because... You know, crimes and drugs are coming and the opposition is using fear the other way, which is, hey, if we protect our borders, it's a slippery slope. And the next thing you know, he's going to be rounding up citizens of the United States and putting them in concentration camps
0: Mm. for
1: whatever reason your hysteria imagines.
0: Why is being descriptive and illustrating a visual really important when it comes to fear and persuasion in general?
1: Our brains are visual tools, meaning that whatever is visual dominates our thinking. So if you see one thing, but you hear about another thing, the thing you see is going to influence you more, depending on what it is, of course. It has to be a a powerful visual image. But if it is, that's going to influence you more than a concept. So for example, recently there was a story of a very unfortunate event where a father and a young child died trying to come into the United States. And the photograph of them tangled together and dead in the water is at least 100 times more powerful than somebody saying on the other side, well, we need strong border security and we should have done this or that or it's really it's really the prior administration's fault or whatever they say. Those are words. Those are concepts. Those are ideas. Those are sometimes facts, sometimes not But in any case, they can't compete with a picture. The picture just takes over our brain and dominates our thinking. Mm -hmm. So you'll see that the president, even when he talks about things, likes to use verbal pictures. So he doesn't say, we'd like better border security. He says, we want a wall. Because a wall you imagine in your head, and you imagine whatever wall you know, you want to imagine, so he's not too over-descriptive, which is also good technique.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You'll see that wherever there's a visual competing against a concept, probably 90% of the time, the visual beats the concept.
0: Yeah, and another example from my listeners is Trump went on SNL, and he had a skit in the Oval Office, and after that, it became easier for people to imagine him as president. I think another one would be his red hat that he always wore, Make America Great Again. yeah. And speaking of that, how do you think that helped with his campaign?
1: Well, I think the Make America Great Again slogan is one of the most successful branding slogans of all time. So I think that its purpose, to get him elected in the first place, served its purpose perfectly. The the Red Hats, as you mentioned, makes this huge visual when he has the rallies. So the rallies are as much about exciting the people who attend as it is creating photographs that people can look out later and see how many people were there. So if you see that a lot of people are joining a movement, it makes you want to join. So you see President Trump often complains that the fake news, as he calls them, is not turning their cameras to show how big the crowds are. So if he can't get the actual picture, he puts the picture in your mind with his words, which is good technique. So you'll say, the crowd here is gigantic. Look at all these people, so many people, tens of thousands. The fake news is not showing you. But at least you get a visual in your head just from this description. So that's terribly powerful. And the example you used where he did the Saturday Night Live skit as an actual president before he was president was brilliant because, you know, the, the candidates would get to approve anything that they were in. And he approved one that allowed people to imagine him as president during a time when people literally couldn't imagine it. Mm -hmm. And that visual allowed them to do it. Whereas Hillary Clinton also had a chance to go on SNL, and she approved a skit that put her in a bar drinking too much. Mm. Now, that visual probably hurt her, and Trump's visual probably helped him. And that's one of the reasons I've pointed out that he's better at it than most people, including him.
0: So let's move on to some of your tactical persuasion strategies, specifically focusing on some of the oral persuasion strategies that you talk about. Why is it better to be simple and straightforward when you're trying to persuade someone?
1: There's a general estimate, a good rule of thumb, that if you were to give somebody, let's say, a PowerPoint presentation, you don't need the PowerPoint, but just a presentation, that people will remember about 10% of it. And if you're smart, you will design your presentation so the part they remember is the part you care about the most. So if you keep things simple, you at least create a better chance that the important stuff will be remembered. Mm. So when President Trump says, build the wall, that's simple, and he repeats it until all you can think about is that wall, you picture it in your mind, you still might be opposed to it but you know exactly what he wants. And part of good persuasion and good communication in general is that you want people to know exactly what you want, not approximately what you want. And he is the best we've ever seen, maybe the best we'll ever see in the future, at being clear and being simple and being repetitive with his messages. Nobody's ever done that better.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's probably why he won. And it's just funny that people didn't realize that he was most likely being strategic. I think you met him in person. Did he admit that he was being strategic about all these things or did you not talk to him about that?
1: Well, he's admitted it long before the election because he wrote a book. There was a a ghost writer, but it was Trump's book called The Art of the Deal. Mm-hmm. And the Art of the Deal lays out his techniques that are pretty much what he used to get elected. So, for example, he talks specifically about using hyperbole. Now, for those who you know may not speak English as a first language, hyperbole in this context refers to exaggerations that are exaggerated enough that the fact-checkers would say, that's not true, but they're in the right direction. So, for example, when Trump says, 100,000 people came to my rally, and the fact-checkers check it and find out it was only, let's say, 20,000, but 20,000 is more than anybody else could get to a rally, and it's still pretty darn impressive, you still leave the conversation thinking, wow, a lot of people went to that rally, and that's what he's trying to tell you. So the, the specifics don't matter. And he talks about that in his book. So when the president has been accused of failing the fact-checking, I think it's up to 10,000 times. The title of my book, Win Bigley's, the, the subtitle was Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. And what I said back in 2015 is, is you don't see this coming. You think the facts matter, and that's why you're blind to this. He knows the facts don't matter. But it does matter if you're directionally true, because if you're not at least directionally true, people will spot that pretty quickly. So for example, if he says illegal immigration is the biggest problem in the world, but the truth might turn out it's just a big problem and nowhere near the biggest problem in the world, well, you're still convinced that it needs to be addressed. And that's really the the thing he's trying to, to get through. So I say that he's been signaling his method all along. And one of the other things he does, you know, he talks about branding. And then you saw him brand his opponents. You saw Low Energy Jeb and Lion Ted Cruz and Crooked Hillary, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how he does it. And then he does it right in front of you. And he does it better than it's ever been done. To the point where simply branding Jeb Bush as Low Energy caused such a stark contrast in your mind between Jeb's energy and Trump's that it really made a difference and took Bush completely out of the race from being the presumptive winner to being almost a broken leg as soon as he left the starting gate. Now, that is impressive persuasion, and he repeated it so you know it wasn't an accident.
0: Yeah, and you call this a linguistic kill shot, correct?
1: Yeah, I like to brand things too. (laughs) So this is literally the same technique. By giving it a name, I could have that associated with my thoughts on it, and it allows my brand to expand a little bit. So I use the same techniques the president does at a lower scale. And by calling it a linguistic kill shot, which got picked up by a lot of the media, it gets repeated a lot, I attached myself to a national story, and that's also something that a trained persuader would learn to do.
0: So, how can we use something like that in real life? Like, say we're arguing with a coworker or whatever it is, like, how could we use that to our advantage? Like, can you just take it down a level to real life?
1: Well, some of Trump's techniques are hard to reproduce in real life because he has a superpower that you don't, which is, as he likes to say, he can take the heat. And boy, could he take the heat. So he can take criticism of the kind that would make other people just, you know, dig a hole and and bury themselves. So if you can do that, then you can use all of his techniques. But if you're not comfortable with that, you have to pare it back to some easy stuff. So, for example, you could certainly use fear. And let's just use an example at, at your workplace. You know, if one person says plan A is good and the other person says plan B is good, and let's say you're for plan B... Instead of saying, well, here are all my facts and here's my research, you could say, you know, plan A, we don't know if it's the best one or not, but plan B, we could all die. Plan B could put us out of business. Hmm. Plan B could actually kill somebody. Now, that might not be exactly true. You might be exaggerating uh, how dangerous it is. But when people question it, they're going to say, if that's not true, it's not going to actually kill anybody. That's an exaggeration. But it might wound somebody, and it might drop our profits by 30%. So the person who used the hyperbole drew the other person into agreeing that there could be some really bad things and made them think about them, made them visualize them in their own mind. So you can use hyperbole at work as long as you can take the heat for also failing the fact-checking. Mm-hmm. Another thing that Trump does really well is is it makes you think past the sale. It's one of the most powerful sales tools. The way a car salesman would do it, or salesperson, the salesperson would say, you know, do you like the red car or the blue one? Because they're making you think past the question of whether you want to buy one. And they're making you think of the details. The president uses this technique. And by the way, it's well demonstrated that this works. When he talks about, for example, either North Korea or Iran, he doesn't just say, give up your nuclear weapons. That's what the bad persuaders of the past used to say. He says, if you give up your nuclear weapons, you can have this amazing future. And actually, I believe he had a video at one point showing North Korea's lights all coming on and prosperity and lots of visual persuasion. So he makes you think about what the country is going to be like after you give up your nukes. Same with Iran. He says Iran could be this amazing, amazing country. Your economy could boom if you give up these nukes. So he makes you live in the future that you imagine where you've thought past the decision, do we keep our nuclear weapons? Do we develop nuclear weapons or not? Into a future where you imagine yourself there and you've got peace and prosperity because you made that decision in the past. That is a very strong persuasion technique. The president uses it all the time and you rarely see it from other people. And there's no reason for it except that they're less trained.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. I want to talk to all you employers out there and let's talk about company culture. I've hired some of my best employees at Indeed, some of my best scrappy hustlers. With over 140 million qualifications and preferences analyzed every day, Indeed is constantly learning from your hiring preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets at actually hiring your perfect match. Join the ranks of more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that have already chosen Indeed to hire great talent. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash profiting. Just go to Indeed.com slash profiting right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash profiting. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and profiters, I've got a fun fact for you. Did you know that by 2030, over 85% of the jobs that will exist haven't even been invented yet? And that's why we need to acquire new skills and stay relevant and adaptable. By embracing lifelong learning, we can future-proof our careers and our businesses. That's why you've got to check out Economist Education. Economist Education provides online executive education courses tailor-made for professionals just like us, crafted by the economist's own editors and special experts. Economist Education courses are designed to sharpen your professional skills in key areas like data storytelling, critical thinking, sustainability, and so much more. I highly recommend checking out the Economist Education course, Business Writing and Storytelling. It's packed with valuable practical advice on how to inform and persuade through writing reports, social media, presentations, and beyond. The best part, these courses are online, flexible, and self-paced, lasting anywhere from two to six weeks. You're guided by expert tutors. You'll dive into a mix of videos, podcasts, texts, quizzes, and weekly assignments. Plus, you'll get a three-month digital subscription to The Economist to support your learning journey. Economist Education provides access to online forums where you can network with peers around the globe. In a world where knowledge is power, Economist Education empowers you to lead the way. Economist Education is an incredible way to stay ahead in business. And I've got a special offer to get you started. Get 15% off any course, only available by going to my special URL, education.economist.com profiting, That's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash profiting free with code profiting free. Another persuasion strategy that I think we could apply ourselves that you talk about in your book is to propose an outrageous solution and then over time dial it back to position yourself as someone who's compromising. Can you explain how to do that and why it works?
1: Yes, that's the the big offer. So anybody who negotiates is familiar with this technique. You walk into the office and say, I will not sell you these products for less than one million dollars. And the other person is like, Whew, I was only planning to offer a hundred thousand. But now that that million dollars is in my mind, I'm already biased towards something in between, maybe five hundred thousand. But it could be that the person who said a million was just hoping to get the the deal bigger than 400,000. And the the person who offered, was thinking of offering 100,000, here's a million, and they don't offer 100,000 after that. They think, oh, darn it, I'm going to have to go somewhere closer to the middle. How about 500,000? And then the person who offered a million, but really would have been happy with 400,000, says, I'll take it because I did okay. So you see the president do this with, for example, anything with immigration. So at first he wants a wall that's a big, giant wall, and it's really expensive, and it's going to be every inch of the border. But then as people talk about how impractical and expensive that might be, it turns into, well, it doesn't have to be a wall so much. It could be a barrier, or it could be similar to the barriers that we've used before. And I'm not talking about every place, just the places that are important. And we don't have to do it all right away. We could spread this out over time and, and that sort of thing. So asking for a lot and settling for a little less is standard sales technique. We see the president using it more aggressively than other people have and to good effect,
0: I think. Yeah. So something similar to this idea is presenting our solutions in the context of worse alternatives. It's, again, moving towards... Compromising, moving the needle closer to what we want by using an extreme. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's the concept of contrast. I said earlier that we're pattern recognizing machines, and we are, but we're also contrast machines. So if a real estate broker takes you to a house that's too expensive, you say, Well, I don't want to buy that house, and then you're done. But a real estate broker takes you to a house that you say you could afford. Let's say you say, My budget is this much the real estate agent will take you to the best house that fits your budget. And the first thing you're going to find is it's not nearly as good as you wanted it to be. And then they're going to say, well, just for contrast, just so you know what the options are, I know this is beyond your budget, or at least the budget you want to spend, but let me show you what one looks like that's a little bit more expensive. And then when you see it, you say to yourself, oh man, I did not want to spend this much on a house, but now that I can compare it to the one I thought I could afford more easily. There's just no contest anymore. I have to have this better house. So contrast will make your non-critical faculties kick in pretty hard. And you'll say, ah, I wanna avoid that bad one. This good one suddenly looks much better.
0: Interesting. Last question on persuasion. You were talking about talent stacking before. I think it also relates to persuasion and stacking your persuasion skills. So can you talk about some of the talent stack that Trump's persuasion skills were composed of and why it's important to layer on skills and not just be a one tactic person?
1: Yeah, Trump actually has the most powerful set of talents you'll ever see. Even if you allow, that, not one of those talents, not a single one, is top shelf world class. So, for example, there are people who are probably better at branding. There are people who are probably better at giving a speech. There are probably people who are better at business. People who are better at politics. People who know more about all the details of policy. And you can go right down the line. But who do you know, and I'll tell you the answer, there's nobody, who can do branding plus command a giant rally crowd and keep them totally entertained the entire time? Who can run the government like a reality show and make that work? Mm. Who can hire and fire as quickly as the guy who's famous for firing people quickly? Who can see a business situation faster? Who has more experience negotiating? And again, it would be perfectly fair to say, well, I could find you a better negotiator, or I could find you somebody who gives a better speech, but good luck finding somebody who has all of that stuff and can do all of those things well above average. Hmm. That's what makes him magic and makes him powerful. And it also made his success invisible to people who couldn't see the talent stack. Because if you make the mistake of looking at it the old way, you say, well, he's not the best at any of these things, and these are the things you need to be president. Therefore, how can he be president? I looked at those things and said, oh, my goodness, we've never seen a stack like this. This is the most powerful combination of skills, you know, emphasis combination, you'll ever see. So uh, having business experience on top of politics, on top of persuasion, on top of branding, on top of reality show, on top of speech giving and all that, You just can't find a better combination than that.
0: Interesting. I said it was my last question on persuasion, but there's one question that I think is really relevant to my listeners, and it's being on the other side of the coin. So how can we protect ourselves from bending towards someone's will or getting persuaded ourselves? Like, How can we be free thinkers and be as unbiased as possible?
1: Well, it's very hard because even people who are experts at this can be persuaded. I feel myself being persuaded all the time. Mm. And in theory, I should have every tool to protect from it. But I feel like I have a little protection. So the things that you can do is learn as much about persuasion as possible. So my book, Win Bigly, is a good introduction to that, and it references other sources that if you wanted to follow up. So first of all, knowing how irrational people are helps. The second thing you should do is look for how often you agree with your team and whether or not you ever disagree seriously. Because if you never disagree with your team, you got a problem you're probably not a serious player. But if sometimes you disagree with the team, that that gives you some hope that you might be breaking out of your bubble. I have a new book coming out called Loser Think that'll be out in November Mm -hmm. 2019. And that teaches you more about how to break out of your bubble. But the questions would be, am I just agreeing with my team? If this were some other person in this situation, would I have the same feeling? In other words, You know, if it were a Democrat who said it, would I feel the same as if a Republican said exactly the same thing? That's a good test. And then the next thing you do is expose yourself to as many different opinions as possible. In the political realm, especially if you don't see uh, both Fox News and CNN I'm just using them as proxies for, you know, two sides. If you don't see both sides and you only see the little tunnel that one side presents, you couldn't possibly understand the full situation. And the other thing is to understand that so often the news is fake. Mm. And I mean that literally. In fact, today, almost all the headlines on today's news are literally fake, in which a long quote is taken out of context to only show the first part, which reverses its meaning. So, And you'll see that over and over again. So make sure you expand your knowledge based on you know different silos of information. So those are the main things. And then wait for Loser Think, my book, to give you some more.
0: Awesome. Tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and everything that you do.
1: Best place to find me is on Twitter at, at Scott Adams Says or Dilbert.com to follow Dilbert itself. And my Twitter will get you to everything else.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I think this was a really educational conversation and I really appreciate your time.
1: Thanks so much. I love the questions and it was a pleasure to be here.
0: What a fantastic episode. There's so much good stuff in here that everyone can benefit from. Scott is really a master at the art of persuasion. And my favorite takeaway from this episode is the idea of talent stacking. The more things we're good at, the more valuable our skill set becomes. It just makes sense. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be the absolute best at each thing, but having a set of skills that can feed off each other will set you up for success. For listeners looking to grow their careers, this is some of the best advice that I've heard on the podcast. And when it comes to persuasion, talent stacking is just as important. Techniques we talked about in this episode, like visuals, hyperbole, the linguistic kill shot and fear are all important to learn and practice and build upon your skill sets. If you understand how to use these tools, you will be prepared to persuade anyone at any time. Another crucial thing Scott talked about is the importance of clear, simple, repetitive messaging. People only remember 10% of what they learn. By reiterating the most important points in clear, concise ways, you can make that 10% count. This is super powerful stuff. And lastly, we also talked about how to avoid being persuaded and be an independent thinker. This is especially important to end with because we are constantly being influenced. The news, our favorite celebrities, TV shows, you name it, they're all persuading us to think one way or another. By learning about persuasion, diversifying your networks, and exposing yourself to different news sources, you can expand your view of the world and start thinking for yourself. Being able to sift through bias and consider each side of the problem are skills that will benefit you for the rest of your life. Let's keep on learning and get to talent stacking. I've included links to Scott's books and his full length YAP episode in the show notes. It's number 38 if you forgot. And if you enjoyed this topic, be sure to check all of that content out. As always, thanks for listening and thanks to my YAP team for making this possible. Keep crushing it out there. This is Hala signing off.